KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. There's new data out about life expectancy in the U.S., and it's not good. We haven't seen this much of a decline in over 100 years. We're losing the battle right now, but it is not a battle we have to lose. Dr. Joshua Sharfstein knows this stuff inside and out. He's the director of the Bloomberg American Health Initiative and a professor of the practice in health policy and management at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. But even though there are some alarming trends out there, we can still do things to get back on track. There are opportunities to save lives all around us. We just have to take them. I'm Matt Leon, and today on KYW News Radio In-Depth, why life expectancy in America is on the decline, especially for certain groups of people, and what has to change for us to live healthier lives. So to start, just kind of give us a quick outline of what this report digs into. Sure. Well, we just learned that the American life expectancy has fallen significantly again in 2021, and the drop that we've seen is the largest since World War I and the Great Influenza more than 100 years ago. So uh, this report looks at some of the major causes for the staggering decline and what can be done about them. What is the drop? Can you give us the numbers wise for some context? Sure. So average life expectancy at birth in the United States is now 76.1 years. Its peak was at 78.9 years in 2014, and then it was kind of flat, and then just the bottom fell out during the pandemic. So it, it's pretty significant drop, and it's even more pronounced for certain populations. For example, there was a four-year drop for Black Americans and more than a six-year drop for Indigenous Americans. These numbers, for the average numbers, uh, we haven't seen since 1996 when Bill Clinton was president. What's behind it? I mean, obviously, we're talking pandemic is, I would imagine, at the top, if not near the top. But it, I'm sure it's got to be more than that. What are the, the top reasons that's believed to be driving this decline? Well, you're right about that, Matt. The top reason is covid but it's not the only reason. Another big one is fatal drug overdoses, claiming the lives of more than 100,000 Americans every year. Uh, Gun-related homicides and suicides, which kill 47,000-plus Americans every year, and also increasing substantially. Actually, motor vehicle crash deaths have increased uh, 30% since 2014, uh, and we also have heart disease going up, and that's the nation's leading killer. So even a small percentage increase means a lot more deaths. It's across several major causes, but there are ways to prevent a lot of those deaths in each of those cases. You mentioned the deeper drops for some groups. What's behind specifically for these groups? Is it lack of access? Is it structural racism? Is there... Is there something that can be pointed to tangibly to, to say why black Americans' life expectancy has dropped much more than white Americans? Yeah, I think that there are a number of different factors, and it partly depends on the cause. So for COVID, we know that black Americans, for example, had uh, less access to health care, but they also were working more frontline jobs, couldn't protect themselves as easily, and were living in conditions that made it more easy for them to get COVID. So there are a, a bunch of factors. If you think about overdoses, we know that black Americans have less access to effective treatment and are more likely to be arrested rather than offered treatment. Each of these factors, you know, has a particular issue with respect to equity. Let me mention one more. Teen suicides have gone up 25%. And one of the things that our faculty have noted is that 
depression and anxiety in young people can be treated differently depending on race. Some young people get support and care, therapy, medical attention, whereas others get suspended from school, punished, and maybe put into juvenile detention. Though That's the kind of structural factor that underlies some of these, these differences. When it comes to starting to try to reverse this, kind of can you go step by step through some of the main causes for the decline and what the report outlines that could be ways to try to turn this around? I think that the main overall point here is that these declines are not inevitable. There are things that we can do. So for COVID, Congress can pass the appropriation that can make it easier, not only for people to get uh, vaccines, treatments, and get boosted, which is extremely important, but also help us have ready a new generation of vaccines so that we're a step ahead of the virus. That's very important. When it comes to overdose, there are treatments that reduce the chance of dying from an overdose by 75% or more, but fewer than one in five people have access to those treatments. And we can expect, we should expect, that emergency departments, hospitals, jails, and prisons offer those treatments routinely. Also, there are harm reduction approaches that can make a big difference in keeping people alive and eventually having them have access to treatment. And then when it comes to guns, we know that extreme risk orders, which are orders that can be issued to remove guns from people who are imminently dangerous, temporarily remove their guns. For every 10 to 20 orders issued, a suicide can be prevented. And those orders also have interrupted homicides and mass shootings. Those are laws that are broadly supported, adopted by states across the political spectrum and could expand. And then also there are policies called permit to purchase policies where you require people to get a permit to get a gun. 75% of gun owners in states that have these policies support them and they're associated with reductions in homicides, suicides and mass shootings. When it comes to motor vehicle crashes, urban redesign can reduce the chance, you know, that there accident after accident or at a particular or crash after crash at a particular intersection. In addition, there is technology being developed that if it's implemented can really prevent drunk driving from happening by keeping people who are drunk from being able to operate a motor vehicle. When it comes to teen suicides, we can expand access to confidential and supportive treatment in schools and, and healthcare in schools so that kids can unburden themselves and talk about what is going on rather than feel like they have no alternatives. And for heart disease, one of the ideas in our report is to address the salt in the diet because salt causes hypertension, hypertension causes strokes, and it is possible to tighten up a little bit um, the salt that's in our processed food and save 50,000 plus lives. So there are opportunities to save lives all around us. Uh, we just have to take them. How much do these factors that are leading to this decline kind of feed into each other. And what I mean by that is if somebody's struggling with hypertension, heart disease, COVID's going to be more dangerous for them. And like you see these factors start to kind of overlap and that kind of helps lead to push the number down just because people are fighting a battle on multiple fronts, if you will. I think you're right. I think that they, they do overlap to some extent. And even something like overdose has been made worse by the pandemic, especially, you know, as people are very isolated, that, you know, can lead to despair. But I also think that we can see the reverse, that if we start to put in place one policy, then it can inspire people to believe the change is possible. And you can get more policies, programs that can move the needle in the right direction. Are the right people 
alarmed by this. And what I mean by that is from people that you talk to, people that you worked with with this report, decision makers that could help put these policies or really champion policies that are already in place, do they get it? Do they understand how alarming this is? I think the answer to that excellent question is some, but not enough. So we do see a lot of these programs and policies being put into place and saving lives in parts of the United States, but not in enough areas. And in some cases, congressional action would be extremely helpful. So I think that one of the reasons we're issuing this report is to help people realize that, you know, we are losing health in this country and we're losing the battle right now but it is not a battle we have to lose and if we can focus on it and think about what our health means to ourselves our children our neighbors then there are steps that that we can take and we don't we're not resigned to continuing to to see these problems we talked about the differences in different groups of people is the difference kind of similar across the country the numbers are dropping about the same across the board, or there are there are certain pockets where life expectancy has really plummeted and other places where it's held serve. And I don't know if you have that type of data available. Sure. Well, you know, rural areas have been hit particularly hard. Rural areas have been hit particularly hard by COVID. They also are hit particularly hard by gun-related suicides. And uh, I think that Part of closing the gaps is closing the rural-urban gaps. I think the life expectancy is several years lower in rural areas. You know, geographically, for the country as a whole, there's particular challenges in the southern United States, but every area is affected. How much of this kind of leads back to the idea that we have to do a better job funding public health? And not just funding, but funding the programs that we know will work, that we know do work, that have a track record of working. Because I really thought the pandemic would shine the light on the importance of public health. And one of the challenges of public health is the better it works, the less people know about it, so the less people care about it. Public health has to be a 24-7 thing, no? I couldn't agree with you more. You know, public health has lost tens of thousands of employees after the recession of 2008 and then suddenly had to scale back up for the pandemic and has only really gotten kind of one-time funding. So we have a major public health infrastructure question, which keeps a lot of health departments from being able to offer the protection that people in this country deserve. I was part of a report issued by the Commonwealth Fund a few months ago that called for the creation of a national public health system where there is support for state and local, tribal and territorial health departments, a meaningful support in exchange for expectations that they're able to deliver core public health services. There are many parts of the country that are not covered, and those parts were particularly vulnerable to COVID. We will be vulnerable to more pandemics, but we'll also continue to lose lives unnecessarily to overdose, to car crashes, to other preventable causes, heart disease. If if we don't realize that, you know, public health may be invisible, like you said, but it is it's there and it's it's like a net. And it either catches us or it doesn't. We've touched on a wide variety of things that are pushing life expectancy down. Are there things we should be worried about in the horizon that maybe are problems now but aren't the driver of this bust, but things coming up? Yeah, great question. The report talks about climate and climate changes. We know that heat waves can be devastating for people. There have been history in in history, heat waves have killed thousands of people, and extreme heat 
is becoming more and more common. And so it's really important for uh, places to have uh, heat action plans to think about how they can recognize when a heat wave is coming and respond with cooling centers and you know, more tree cover, other things strategically to mitigate the effects of climate change. It's, it's going to happen. And, you know, heat waves could become a major killer if we aren't on top of that now. As an expert, as somebody who's lived this, who studied this, are you confident we can turn this around? Well, um, I know that the Philadelphia Flyers uh, beat the defending Stanley Cup champions last night. So I, I think anything is possible. And I think that when people hear about the evidence, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, when they think about their families and their neighborhoods and their communities, they want to do the right thing for health. And so I do have hope and confidence that more places can put in place the kinds of steps to save lives. And that's why we're putting out this report. That's why a lot of us in the field of public health get up every day is because we believe that there's a lot to be done to give people the freedom to live long and healthy lives. And if someone wants access to the report, what's the easiest way to find it? Um, you can find it at AmericanHealth.JHU.EDU. That's AmericanHealth.JHU.EDU. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. A Philadelphia dentist today was sentenced to 22 years in prison and fined $100,000. This was just unbelievable. You gotta understand the genius in Larry. Nobody was doing coke at this point. No one could believe that this highly educated, young, handsome man was this kingpin drug dealer. This is Wolves Among Us, the Larry Lavin story. A documentary podcast from C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Listen now on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.